0: This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back.
1: With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio from the London market close to the US market action. A lot coming up over the next hour. Coming up on this programme, markets reek of caution ahead of Thursday's big day. The Qatar SPAT enters mediation and Theresa May seeks help from Boris
2: Johnson. Let's get you up to speed on the uh, top story, shall we? Here's Bloomberg's Charlie Padden. And I thank you very much Jonathan Farrow. A lot going on as you point out. Prime Minister May deploying Boris Johnson to the northeast of England in a bid to conquer Brexit supporting Labour strongholds even as the fallout from the London terror attacks continues to dominate the election campaign. The Tories continue to face criticism for cutting police numbers with Johnson batting off questions about how the terrorists slipped from authority The Scottish town of Peterhead, which is the UK's largest fishing port, has become a conservative target. The SNP run the uh, semi-autonomous government in Edinburgh for the past decade and is pushing for another vote on independence at the end of the Brexit negotiations. In recent years, people there rejected independence in the 2014 referendum and were among Scotland's most enthusiastic supporters of Brexit in the vote last year. And Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson says he sees no reason to revoke Britain's invitation to President Trump after he mocked Mayor Sadiq Khan's response to Saturday's terror attacks in the capital. The dispute puts Prime Minister May in an Embarrassing position two days before the general election, as polls show her Conservative Party's once commanding lead has narrowed dramatically. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you.
0: Charlie Pellet, thank you very much. From London for London, this is The Cable. And if I wanted to go for a pine and invite three people to talk about markets, I would probably choose the following three in London. Simon Ballard, Global Credit Market Strategist for Bloomberg, Ken Vexler, Director at Acumen Management here in London and Richard Jones, FX and rates Strategist. Gents, great to have you with me. Simon, I'm going to give you the first word on the politics. Um, I always think there's a message in the final week where people campaign. And the Prime Minister's going after Labour hard, now is that a sign of confidence or a sign of complacency?
1: I think it's probably a sign of complacency or realization that she didn't go after them hard enough in the first instance, because she was complacent that she had that 20-point lead when she, uh, when she announced the snap election back in uh, back in mid-April. And it's taken until now to to wheel out the Boris, um, and perhaps try and sort of take the uh, the Brexit argument a little bit uh, a little bit firmer and and face up to uh, Labour, which has become obviously you know more and more popular and more and more uh, you know, almost sort of. Uh, you know, Prime Minister sounding in terms of Mr Corbyn's, uh, you know, press and, uh, and and media coverage. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of complacency, but perhaps waking up, hopefully not at the, uh, you know, too, uh, too late a moment to to make it a decent fight.
0: Hey, Ken, I don't know if wheeling out that Boris is considered a good or a bad thing, so I'll let you decide what you make of the campaigning ahead of Thursday. Uh, look, it's quite the analogy to make, and
3: frankly, I can only think of um, uh, that uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. But the campaigning, it's mixed. <laughs> which one? Well, I think we all know which one. <laughs> look, campaigning's mixed. The poll results are all over the shop, and cable is reflecting exactly that. It stays put for the time being, and we just have to see what the 10.01 print on Thursday night looks like and exactly. infer from there.
0: Uh, Richard Jones, I think it's really interesting that we've seen the polls narrow as much as they have. Uh, the Conservative Party rolling over to some extent, the Labour Party rolling up to a much bigger extent, yet the spot price is just stuck at the uh, at 129, near the top end of the range on cable. The pound actually hasn't adjusted that much.
4: To the polls? It just gaps around. And, and, you know, Ken, as someone who trades this will probably bear this out, that you get you get news, it gaps either higher or lower, and then it just sort of trades sideways for the next period of time, a week, two weeks, whatever it is. And it just waits for the next bit of headline news to hit. And I think realistically, all the toing and froing with the election, you know, the Conservatives had 100 plus seat majority about a month ago. And now, you know, we're looking at maybe a much smaller majority, maybe even a hung parliament, depending upon what the polling says. You know, the pound really hasn't done anything. And I think whatever happens in the election will get a move either up or down in the pound. But realistically, it's all about Brexit. It's all about the negotiations, which are going to start pretty quickly. And none of that, from what I have seen, looks very encouraging for the pound longer term.
0: Ken?
3: Yeah, just just on that, I mean, it, I think what we're seeing in, in cable at the moment is probably not uh, dissimilar to what we saw in the euro ahead of the French elections. No one really has an ability to price the tail risk. Everyone knows that ultimately there's a negative sentiment, there's a negative whiff about what happens post-election in a two-year negotiation process. And I think most people are trying to get set for that. So any pop, a significant pop above 132, will look to find some real sellers. Up until that time, it's, it's noise and, and nothing more than that. So with, with an absence of anyone with anything really in it, you can't expect it to move too much unless you know algo start trading with themselves on headlines that are, that are coming thick and fast
1: simon wayen yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's all I mean, it's the, the uncertainty at the end of the day, and uncertainty on two fronts. First, it's the uncertainty around the election itself and the fact that we were so offside in terms of expectations in 2015. And that 1001 print, as Ken puts it, is so important on Thursday night when we get the exit polls and the shock effect that that had back in 2015, plus really the unknown uh, sort of quantities of, uh, of Brexit themselves. So, you know, until that point, we're going to, uh, you know, whip around as uh, as, headlines, as headlines push us. So, Ken, help me
0: understand the price action. You fade a move up to 132. Do you buy a move down to 127,
3: 126? No, I, th- I think 127, 126 is probably the natural resting ground in the short to medium term until such time as we have more details unfold, unfold as with regard to negotiations. But ultimately, I think we do head lower. As far as fading a pop, I mean, it's... It's a slightly dangerous market to call 132 the high or calling any high for that matter because as FX is always prone to do we can overshoot but certainly up around there and, and certainly beyond you'd be looking at to, to start yeah, fading.
0: Richard let's dig into this 1001 print, you get the exit poll, do you trade on sentiment or fundamentals at that point because in terms of fundamentals if you get the big shock tail risk and it materializes and let's just war game this out you get a labor majority for instance technically based on fundamentals that should mean more deficit spending higher guilt yields and therefore better rate differentials in the favor of the pound are you going to trade that story or just trade i've got no idea what's about to happen i'm selling
4: well the knee jerk will, will tell us as much about what the positioning is going into the event as anything else and so if you get some, some unexpected result, you will definitely see the first, first move being just positioning being cleaned out. Longer term, I defy anybody to tell me exactly how this is gonna play out. And the reason I say that is because nobody has a clue whether it's Jeremy Corbyn, Theresa May, or anybody else sitting at the negotiating table, how those negotiations are going to pan out. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's a wild card, even if we did know. But if we don't know, it's it's as we do now, I think it's an even wilder card.
1: Some balance? Yeah, but for the sake of trading in the overnight marketing, yeah, corporate bonds are closed, whatever, but from an FX perspective, I think, you know, you see uh, those exit polls at 10.01 coming out with Labour as the majority. Then I think that is a negative short-term trade, at least overnight, until the realization and perhaps the debate about fundamentals, as you suggest, John, yeah. comes into play on the Friday, and we talk about you know the longer term rather than the short term. But the expectations going into the election is still that Mrs. May comes out with a majority, perhaps smaller than she's got now. Who knows? Uh, but that is the that's the default, that's the positive. I think market expectation. Anything away from that's a negative trade overnight. Gents, you're sticking with me,
0: Simon Ballard and Richard Jones of Bloomberg, and Ken Wexler of Acumen Management. Dare I say? A quiet, remarkable calm or an uncomfortable calm in the FX market ahead of this. The cable rate unmoved at 128.95. We're down not even a tenth of 1%. 48 hours away from results night. Still ahead on the cable. We've talked about what this means for the currency market. What on earth does it mean for government bonds and gilts more specifically? A UK election. Could it spur a bond sell-off? From London for the city of London. This is Bloomberg. The
1: this is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Hello, hello to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. From the London market close to the US market action, you are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5.10pm. So the big question, what happens to guilt if the tail risk materialises and Jeremy Corbyn wakes up as the Prime Minister on Friday morning? UK government bonds could plunge if the Labour Party pulls off a shock upset in Thursday's election. According to several analysts, Deutsche Bank and Citigroup would turn bearish if the opposition wins, while AXA investment managers went short on gilt futures and long US Treasury futures ahead of the vote. Joining me to break down the bond market, Simon Ballard of Bloomberg, Richard Jones of Bloomberg and Ken Vexler of Acumen Management. Simon, walk me through it. What happens? You wake up Friday... The gilt market opens, and Jeremy Corbyn's the prime minister. What does it mean for guilt?
1: What it means for guilt I assume, will be uh, you know a sharp a sharp rise in, in yields, you know a sell-off in the uh, in the government bond space. Um, but at the same time, you're going to get a defensive bid into Treasuries. You'll get a defensive bid into Bund. So you'll see a collapse in yields or a sharply lower move in yields um, over there on the back of the anticipated sort of debt financing that Mr. Corbyn's going to use to uh, to expand the economy. Um, and I guess there'll probably be sort of a, a, a net run for, 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 for haven trades on the back of the proposed um, cabinet that he's going to put together given sort of some of the uh, some of the expectations there and, and, and market pricing for that
0: rich the intuitive move would be guilt yields up sterling stronger the counterintuitive and maybe the toxic move could be guilt yields up and sterling down if you get that kind of price action what's the signal the message that you would take from that
4: that's repatriation that's selling the uk that's that's a, a big uh, vote of non-confidence as it were and and uh, Under that scenario, you could see and and bear in mind as well that uh, talking about the Brexit negotiations in the context of the pound, it's the same thing with gilts, right? And if the economy heads south, the Bank of England will probably do more QE. And so therefore, you'll have, let's say, a a wave of selling and a very big buyer in the market. It's going to be messy. It's going to be it has potential to be very, very messy should that happen.
0: So we've had a couple of big surprises. This would even be a bigger surprise based on where the polls are currently. Ken, we had Brexit, we had a President Trump, and after several of these kinds of events, the magnitude of the move got smaller and the duration of the fallout got shorter. So let's say we get another surprise over the next 48 hours and we wake up Friday morning with one. Do we get a big move that just doesn't last very long? Uh, I
3: think you do. And I think, frankly, come Monday, everyone will be talking about Wednesday's FOMC Uh, because no matter who wins, there'll be a cabinet reshuffle or a cabinet structuring. What does that mean? What does that then mean beyond for Brexit negotiations and the like? What's the FOMC going to do? The market's pricing in practically 100% that they move. Fine, they do. What's the wording like? Are they going to go again this year or not? What does that mean for the dollar story and the like? So, yeah, attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, no doubt.
0: So, Rich, big question. Over the next month, I'm looking at the pound against the dollar at 128.92. Ken Vexler's taken us there. Is the Fed more important for the direction of that cross this month than the election is on Thursday?
4: Yeah, I think probably for the balance of the month, yes. But then the Brexit negotiations are going to start. And that's going to be, I think, the big thing for Sterling. And that's against against the euro in all the crosses. But I think for the balance of the month, I think Ken's right. Yeah, I think the, the FOMC and what that means, not only for this month, but going forward, will be very, very important for the balance of this month. Simon?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely very important. Uh, you know, it's, it's, <coughs> it's all about the headlines and, uh, you know, short term versus longer term.
0: Summer Ballard alongside Richard Jones of Bloomberg and Ken Vexler of Acumen Management. Sticking with me, coming up next on The Cable, City of London buildings rise in value while rent prices continue to fall. There's usually a message in that. And it's someone's not right. A check on traffic, weather and all the news you need to wrap up your day coming up very shortly on The Cable. You are listening to The Cable live from the City of London for, of course, the City of London. I'll be with you throughout the week, counting you down to Election Thursday. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: is the cable with jonathan farrow on bloomberg radio
0: richard jones isn't that tune? <laughs> come on you play the drums to that easy <laughs> <laughs> easy you can play to the, the drums to that after about 10 pints
4: still yes. <laughs> i think that would be doable
0: <laughs> who played the drums for the stones did anyone charlie watts charlie watts charlie Watts. was he good legend. was he as good as ringo Starr? oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> very much so 128.91 on a cable rate, down about a tenth of 1% on the day. 48 hours away from the vote in the united kingdom a softer pound story but only on the margin really muted price action i've got to say in fx today in equity markets a real soft tone across much of europe with the dax playing catch up after being shut yesterday down by one full percentage point the FTSE really unmoved down by 0.01 percent over in the united states a decent session compared to the rest of europe we're down just a tenth of one percent on the s p 500 the dow down 0.07%. We pull further back from all-time highs. The headline in the bond market, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the programme, Treasury yields plunging down to 2017 lows. We're off by four or five basis points throughout much of the morning, 2.1382% on a US 10-year. That's your yield. That is not where uh, the big... Bond bears wanted the yield to be at the halfway point of 2017, that's for sure. In the market, that's the story. In London, here's one for you. Two miles southeast of London's Cheese Grater Tower, which sold, of course, last month for a record price, there's proof, perhaps that all is not calm in the city's property market. At Canada Water, developer British Land, which also owned half of the skyscraper, has seen the value of land slashed by almost 11% as investors lose their appetite for riskier assets. And that contrasts, of course, with the best properties, which continue to draw some buyers. Some guys that know something about a, a property sitting around the table with me. Ken Vexler of Acumen Management, Richard Jones, FX and Rate Strategist, and Simon Ballard, Global Credit Market Strategist for Bloomberg. Rich, the story of property in London, it's almost been a one-way bet since uh, the financial crisis. Since Brexit, there were big, big question marks about the future of prime property in London. I put the emphasis on prime because it was such a big question mark after, after the Brexit decision as to how many highly educated, skilled, very wealthy individuals would still want to be in London. The answer 12 months in is plenty. Is that going to continue?
4: Well, I think the only thing I would I would uh, call you up on is the fact that I think London property has been a buy, a one way street since about 1992 for about the past 25 (laughs) years. It's, I mean, there was, I I think more so on the on the residential side, and I think it probably applies to the to the commercial side as well. Any dips are short lived and need to be bought into. That just seems to be the way. Now, does Brexit change those metrics? is 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 this a, a fundamental shift? that's going to see that the buoyancy of London property uh, deteriorate you would have to say up until now no it doesn't look like it but as I said it, when we were talking about currencies and, and about the pound and about gilts is that you know I, I think it depends on what happens with Brexit what does it mean what does it mean for London as a financial center how hardball are the Europeans going to be about you know Euro European clearing being Euro clearing being done here in London versus the continent? I mean, look, it, there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but you'd be you'd have gone you'd have gone bankrupt if you'd bet against London property over the past 25 years.
0: Yeah, Ken, we're talking about it very much from the standpoint of sentiment. How do I feel about London property now that the UK may may exit the EU in a, in a big way with a big bang, a hard Brexit, which no one really knows. Well, that seems to be. Um, Ken, talk to me about it from an investment proposition, just a pure investment proposition, given where price is. Well, exactly.
3: I mean, if you are looking at it from that point of view, cash here and pretty much around the world is free. You've got an asset that, as Richard's point pointed out, has gone one way for 25 odd years, and I think the only real concern now, and perhaps the the severity of a hard Brexit or however hard that may be, will be the impact on the momentum of that growth. So, if you've got property that's conservatively growing on average about 10% a year uh, on the underlying. So worst case scenario, that goes to zero. Okay, fine. How long does it stay at zero, and what does it do beyond that? So three, four years of maybe zero, not a chance, but let's say it does, and then steadily it reverts higher once again. So over the duration of the whole 10, 15, 20 years, you're still averaging probably anywhere north of about 7% annualized over that return. That's we're, not that bad.
0: We're talking, Simon Ballard, of course, about you, me, Ken, and, and Rich, buying a house or something, or an apartment. From a business standpoint, commercial property, the big build up that we've seen in a place like London and a business that may be reluctant to invest at this point you have to look at commercial property a little bit differently
1: I think you do and that's one of the big questions I ask myself every morning coming in from uh, from Waterloo into the city you see all these high-rise being built you hear this story about Brexit you hear hard you hear soft you hear the exodus of, of the of the intellects as, as Richard suggested you know feared from uh, from London out to Frankfurt or Paris wherever that might be and I think to myself who's gonna fill all these high-rise buildings that are going up but nevertheless you know as they come to completion they are being occupied um, but for the time being you've got you've got to think there's probably more risk on the commercial property uh, side than there is on the residential I'm long the residential side of course I've yeah. my own book
0: <laughs> June 6th uh, this time last year what were we like two weeks away from the vote I always find it fascinating when you take a step back and really think about some of the words that come out of your mouth did you ever think Richard that we'd be talking about hard brexit and soft brexit 12 months after the event
4: no no chance. Hard Brexit wasn't even in lexicon at that stage. It was, you know, if you look at what Leave was saying, is that, you know, we'd be get control over immigration, access to the single market, maybe some, the, the same sort of arrangement that Norway has, some EEA sort of arrangement. The hard Brexit, the, 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 the really sort of painful divorce, that that implies was not something that was on any of our, our the tip of any of our tongues this time last year.
0: I remember Prime Minister David Cameron at the time sort of laying out the vision of what would happen. He would get a plane over to Brussels and he would trigger Article 50. It took nine months for them to trigger Article 50. He wasn't even the man to go and do it. With one prime minister down, we may be another one down, Simon. But there,
1: there, but therein lies the problem, wasn't it? Because you know, we went into the vote in June, and there was no Plan B. There was, you know, no. it wasn't, it wasn't on anybody's, no. um, on anybody's radar. It was, you know, for 48% of the, the voters, it was inconceivable that uh, you know the the 52-1. But I wonder uh,
0: what you all would have said if I said that the Chancellor George Osborne would have been the editor of the <laughs> Evening Standard 12 months later. I imagine you would have all. Loved in my face. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Jones. Play the music. Ken Vexler. Simon Ballard. Still ahead on the cable. We'll take it to the Treasury market. 2017 lows on a US 10-year from London for the city. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow from the London market close to the U.S. market action. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5.30 p.m. in the city. Let's get you up to speed on some of the top
2: stories. Here's Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Prime Minister May has deployed Boris Johnson to the northeast of England in a bid to conquer Brexit-supporting Labour strongholds, even as the fallout from the London terror attacks continues to dominate the election campaign and the Tories are facing criticism for cutting police numbers with Johnson batting off questions about how the terrorists slipped from the grasp of authorities. The Scottish town of Peterhead, the UK's largest fishing port, has become a conservative target. The SNP has run the semi-autonomous government in Edinburgh for the past decade and is pushing for another vote on independence at the end of the Brexit negotiations. In recent years, people there rejected independence in the 2014 referendum and were among Scotland's most enthusiastic supporters of Brexit in the vote last year. And Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson says he sees no reason to revoke Britain's invitation to President Trump after Trump mocked Mayor Sadiq Khan's response to Saturday's terror attacks in the Capitol. The dispute puts Prime Minister May in an <coughs> embarrassing position two days Thank before you. the general election as polls show her conservative party's once-commanding lead has narrowed dramatically. May's already been criticized for her attempts to get as close as possible to Trump, including holding his hand as the two of them walk through the White House in January. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie, how did you fit that in? You just roll with the punches, Jonathan Farrow, but let me say, bless you.
0: Bless you. Thank you very much. (laughs) The the mic was on when I sneezed. Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. The headline in the Treasury market, 10-year yields, the lowest since the back end of last year, the lowest for 2017 at least, 213.82. Part of the story, As the Chinese currency stabilises, China is prepared to increase its holdings of US Treasuries compared with other sovereign debt. The Yuan has climbed more than 2% against the dollar this year after plunging 6.5% in uh, 2016 in its biggest decline in more than two decades. China's shift to buy Treasuries coincides, of course, with a four-month rally that's reversed much of the sell-off triggered by the US election in November. Investors have piled back into bonds on fading expectations for quicker economic growth and inflation. Joining me, along Alongside me here in the city, Simon Ballard, global credit market strategist for Bloomberg, alongside Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist, and Ken Vexler of Acumen Management. Richard Jones, 2017 lows on a 10-year. Let's talk about consensus, crowded trades, and ones that ultimately become big pain trades. This is a pain trade, isn't it?
4: Well, uh, it certainly feels like it, John, and, and we don't have to rewind that far. Um, as you mentioned when you were introducing the segment about, you know, just after the US election, yields rocketing higher, the dollar rocketing higher, as we're going to get this big fiscal package from the White House, and uh, and it was going to be pro-growth. And, you know, I think not only has the data, I think, been disappointing over sort of the first five months of this year, but also we've not really got any traction on this whole fiscal agenda that was very highly touted, and I think really strongly bought into by investors. it it doesn't even look like a 2017 story anymore. And that's not something that six months ago, I think anybody was envisioning. I thought that, I think everybody was thinking 2017 would see this really start to pick up and that would be pro-growth. And I think we've not seen it in the numbers and we've not seen it in in Washington.
0: Simon, typically low bond yields mean investors don't expect much growth or inflation anytime soon. If they did, they want to be compensated for higher inflation. And the message you get from a flat yield curve is essentially the same thing. What we're seeing is a flattening yield curve. And I put together the view that Rich just painted, the view of this fading kind of optimism around growth and inflation. Then with just the view that more buyers are coming back into the market, price sensitive buyers for other reasons. The Chinese, an example of that. Yeah. How do you put the two things together and look at a Treasury yield of 213 and make sense of
1: it? Well, you've got to look at all the uh, you've got to look at all the uh, the different bars of the uh, of the treasuries as you say, and the you know the flatter yield curve you know tends to incite uh, tends to incite better buyers of uh, of riskier assets. So you see corporate bonds outperforming. Um, you see the stretch down into high yield. You see equities trading at uh, at historic highs, as we've seen, in order to try and get the uh, the additional yield. And then you've got the Chinese coming in, obviously. Subs, um, <clears throat> Uh, looking for the for the the want to stabilize but uh, coming in to be better buyers of the treasury um, you know short term there are many sort of volatility issues that could uh, could drive the yield even further from what the 2 214 10 year that we've got at the moment um, Friday morning we could be uh, we could be see a further see a further flight to quality and, uh, and and break down towards the you know the 210 level um, many di- many different moving parts Ken is this a big pain trade uh, it is for me
3: only because I've just gotten into it um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I sort of – <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I take a step back and think about it this way. Fine. Inflation and growth and the Trump promise that we've all heard and you know seen, and it's come and gone. It's not going to happen. Fine. But if we take the Fed at even half of their word and say that they raise here in June and maybe in September, and if not, then a couple of times next year, then 213 does not make any sense to me. Now, I'm not advocating 270 or 280 – But a return to 235, 240, yeah, sure. Uh,
4: If they are to be believed and if that's where we're headed. Well, the other thing you can't forget, and I think this is completely consistent with what Ken just said, is that 10-year Treasuries at 260, 270, historically isn't great, but in the recent past, that's a good yield and that's gonna draw buyers. And I think that's part of what happened is that you look at where are bund yields, you know, where are are gilt yields, right?
0: South at 1%. 10-year US at two,
4: 250, 260, that's good value, and that's, it's drawn in the buyers, and, and if we did manage to climb higher, it wouldn't surprise me that we see those buyers emerging again. Some about what will it take to break out of this structural story
0: of lower bond yields that we've seen play out, not over the last 12 months, the last
1: 30 years? I was going to say longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> We need a little blonde girl to walk onto uh, onto the stage from uh, from the left, and her name is Goldilocks, I think. And, yeah. you know, we need to remove all that uncertainty. We need to see that low sustainable level of growth, and we need to see some inflation coming back into the global economy. Because as much as they're targeting their two percent, close to or thereby, you know, we're still not seeing it in any meaningful form. So until we get there, then you're going to be it's going to be very difficult. And that's where we get the breakdown between this two fifteen current on ten year and that two sixty two seventy perhaps aspirational type level on ten years. Should the Fed go once twice during, between now and the end of the year,
4: and you know the thing is, is that this whole inflation just not being as high as it should be, and not as high as the central banks would like it, that's that's a global phenomenon. Certainly in, in the markets that I look at, so, so in, in in Europe, in the U.S., it's it's the last time that, that the core PCE, which is the Fed's key metric, was at not even to mention above, but at two percent was over five years ago. It's it's there's just no. There's no upward traction in inflation. Draghi said the same thing. Core inflation in, in Euroland is, has been sub 1%, 1% for most of the past three or four years. And that in itself is probably
1: helping to fuel these 10-year yields at these sort of low levels mm. because on that, that amount of accommodative starts from the central banks, there's an assumption that inflation should be higher, but it's not. So you, know, you try and talk about normalization from the Fed, from the ECB, um, then you know, you, you're, you're taking away that, uh, that safety, that support measure. It's um, you know there's a breakdown between sort of the, the theoretical and the and the fundamental. Yeah.
3: So I, I'm inclined to agree with all of that, and I still still for the life of me, and this is not book talking at all, genuinely can't reconcile a ten year uh, at two twenty at uh, two fifteen yeah. and not two thirty
4: five.
0: Well, it is book talking, isn't it? Because, well, maybe. Well, you've already told us your position, Ken. Yeah, it could have done. <laughs> Don't be like that, John. Well, do you know, do you know what it is? They're just,
4: they're terrified about deflation. Yeah. And, and even now, yeah. they're still terrified about that.
0: Richard Jones, Ken Vexner, Simon Ballard, sticking with me, still ahead on the cable. US President Trump said on a recent trip to the Middle East that leaders had already accused Qatar of funding extremism. Qatar is being isolated in the region. More on that next. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. From the London market close to the US equity market session. This is The Cable. It has just gone 5.30pm in the city. The story globally in terms of foreign affairs. The US President Donald Trump said this morning on Twitter that Middle East leaders he met with last month accused Qatar of financing extremism. Trump's comments comes a day after the White House said the President wanted to, quote, de-escalate the crisis and is committed to holding talks with all parties. The Kingdom and three regional allies, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt and Bahrain, accused their fellow Gulf Cooperation Council member of supporting a range of violent groups and have suspended flights and sea travel to Qatar, ordering Qatari diplomats and citizens out of their respective countries. Qatar has dismissed the Saudi charges as baseless and said the Saudis are seeking to dominate the region. Simon, it's always good when you don't have to spend too much time thinking about the complexity of, of this region. We're spending a lot of time thinking about the complexity of this region again tension's boiling over. Is this something as a market participant you need to spend time
1: thinking about again? I think you do, because there are so many elements to the uh, to the debate. It can be oil, it's geopolitical risk. There's so much that can drive markets which are sitting at these current sort of compressed, tight, overvalued, however you might uh, view risk assets, equities and corporate bonds, etc. at the moment, that you've got to sit back, take it and consider it. Whereas normally you might think, I'm sitting in Europe, I'm sitting in the US, the Middle East doesn't really affect me. But you know, the oil price certainly does. The outlook for global growth, on the back of that, and more importantly, the uh, the implications of the uh, sort of the, the geopolitical and terrorism links, which are all too uh, apparent to uh, to all of us in the West these days.
4: Well, I'm no geopolitical es- expert, John, but it does strike me that the the the, the Middle East is such a, a, a strategically important part of the world. And it's not just what does it mean for the U.S.? What does it mean for Europe? What's Russia's view on it? What's China's view on it? What does that? What does each of those different actors' view on the Middle East mean in relations between all of them? I don't have those answers, but as someone who's traded for a long time, it does make me feel a little bit cautious.
0: Well, let's talk to someone that's trading right here, right now—not right in this building currently, but earlier on, he was Ken Vexler. You're sitting at the trading desk at the terminal. You're logged on, and this kind of news flow comes across your desk in the morning. What do you do with it? How do you distill it? How do you think about it, Ken? First off, I try and find Qatar on a map. Yeah. Uh,
3: Beyond that, you look at what oil actually did. Now, as the news was breaking, oil ramped a couple of percent higher. Before the close of that very same session, not only did it give it all back, but it actually dropped another probably half a percent or thereabouts. So in the scheme of things, what do you do? You actually take a medium term view and you think, does any of this matter, and how will it unfold? And best off, you probably avoid knee-jerk reactions, because that's gonna save you money in the long run. I, I know that's a bit of a non-answer, but genuinely, what do you do? When, when you know the key, probably, commodity there, oil, does exactly that, as I've just described.
0: Is this just another factor, an extra layer, a thin layer, at least, can onto the, onto the safety bid, the haven bid, the bid in treasuries?
3: Probably, because ultimately that is, you know, what, what everyone says, and as a knee-jerk reaction. If you have a look at what dollar-yen's done in the last 48 to 72 hours, you know, sales desk jockeys will tell you it's a great story to sell. Everyone's into safe haven assets. Yen's bid. You probably can't fault that, and it is an automatic
4: response. Beyond that, we'll see. The other thing interesting this morning was that the, the, the advance that we saw in yen versus the dollar was matched almost tick per tick, percentage point for percentage point, with, with gold. Yeah, yeah, and it exactly was—it's not you, you, you. All you sometimes see that, but this was like tick for tick. It mm-hmm. was really mm-hmm. almost like a, a knee-jerk reaction, and and you know, in simpler times when there's not so many moving parts in in the whole sort of macro puzzle, something like this would have been a would a bit would have been a big move. Yeah, yeah. But there's just so many other things going on right now, John. That it just becomes very difficult to process. But I think you're right, at the margin, it's just another sort of push towards safety.
0: And when you do finally find Qatar on the map, you realize it's just really, really small compared to the rest of the countries that have isolated them. In fact, if you find the uh, the routes of travel for Qatar Air today, it's just like this streamline because they can't go through the countries. Yeah, it's just like this one line (laughs) coming from Asia into Europe. Remarkable scene. Coming up next on The Cable, a look ahead to your week ahead. There's only one day you really need to have in the diary. It's Thursday. From the city for the city, this is The Cable.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London from the beautiful city through the week. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable from the London market close to the US equity market action live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5.48 p.m in the city. Let's get you up to speed on the market action today. The equity market, a bit of a softer tone across much of Europe. The FTSE 100 did close marginally lower. The emphasis on marginally, we were down 0.01%. The losses a little bit higher in magnitude. The DAX down by 1% across the continent. If you're looking at the, uh, the CAC 40 over in Paris, France, we were down about three quarters of 1%. If you look over in the United States as the session continues about three and a bit hours through, we're down about a tenth of 1% percent of the S&P 500. We pull back further from all-time highs. The Dow down by 0.07 percent. In the FX market, just remarkably calm ahead of a big risk event on Thursday. The cable rate softer by about a tenth of one percent. 128.84 is the story there. The headline in the bond market, Treasury yields 2017 lows. The 10-year printed about 213. We trade currently on US 10-years at 2.1399 percent. Down four basis points. There was a risk-off bid through this market throughout much of the day. We add in the extra layer of the Chinese said to be prepared to come back into the market and buy more treasuries at any point, maybe soon. Yields went even lower after that. That's the story in the markets. The story for the week ahead is just one day. It's called Thursday. And there's three events on the calendar that you all need to know about. The ECB meets to set monetary policy. There's a UK general election, as if you didn't know. And James Comey, Jim Comey, the former FBI director, fired by President Trump, will testify in Washington on the same day. So I'm asking the same question through the week, going through to Thursday. Ken Vexler, what is the most important event on the calendar that day? Would have to be the election,
3: I think. I think, uh, ultimately, we know where the ECB is going to go, whether it's now or in September. There'll be talk of tapering the program. So some of that has already been built into the price. The election, I think, has longer-term, deeper-seated repercussions. And as far as Comey, uh, that'll just be sport.
4: It'll be interesting, but it'll be sport. Rich? Hard to disagree with that. I'd say uh, there's... For me, I think... The election is is a, is a the biggest unknown of the three, um, but you could see under different scenarios how markets would react, and for someone like Ken who's still trading, how he'd probably want to trade that price action. The thing I'd say about the Comey testimony is I'm not sure what the prognosis is post-Comey, even if it is just sport. I can't see it not moving markets, and I'm not sure what the response to that should be. And when it comes to the ECB, I think, well, if, if, they, if they tweak the language at all, is going to go out of his way to be dovish in the press conference so that he try and get a, a wash at worst. Probably leaning slightly more dovish, I would say, at the margin. Simon,
1: yeah, no, I think if we'd had this conversation two weeks ago and we were looking, at you know, two weeks forward, it would have been the ECB was the key issue because then we assumed it was going to be, you know, a walk in the park for the uh, for the Conservative Party. Um, as it is, it's got to be the election, I guess, because it's a game changer potentially not only for for the UK itself but for the for the broader European um, outlook. Um, as far as ECB is concerned, then it's all in the language. Yes, you know, unlikely to do anything as far as rates are concerned this month, but um, it's more hoping that he maintains that dovish, uh, that dovish tone to the normal, the, the path towards normalisation, that therefore doesn't create a spike in volatility and an offset to uh, to risk appetite um, across equities and credit.
0: Well, I guess when you think about it, you think about who's delivering the message on Thursday and who um, determines the outcome. President Draghi's got to be the most sensible guy in the room and in terms done. of what he can deliver, and he has complete control of the outcome, doesn't he, Thursday?
1: Well, he does, and he's done so much to get himself to the position that he's in now. Uh, you know, it's, in, it's inconceivable that he'd do anything to jeopardise that um, in terms of turning the market around. But, yeah, he's in complete control, and he's, he's the cool head.
0: Here's what I'm surprised about, Ken, is that one of the biggest risk-off days we've had this year wasn't about the ECB, it wasn't about election risk, it's about one thing, really. It was about Jim Comey the former FBI director getting fired and then coming out and saying that maybe or at least suggesting and you could interpret it as the president obstructing justice and that was when the market really fell out of bed so why on Thursday is this still not a big event for markets?
3: It's not that it's not a big event for markets but I think in the context of what else is out there this will only be probably the opening salvo I mean if if he is to open Pandora's box
4: which he may, then this is not going to be over by Thursday afternoon. Rich? Yeah, I think, I think that's I think that's a very fair assessment and, and I think in the context of the broader legislative agenda and and reforms and everything that the President wants to achieve, if this does become something that drags on and, and has implications far beyond Thursday, and I think it's pretty reasonable to think it will, then we've, the, the ripple effects from that will be substantial and uh, it'll be very much, uh, watch this space.
0: Simon Ballard.
4: Yeah, I mean, from a time perspective as well, obviously
1: the, uh, the, the voting will be underway by the time Comey uh, speaks, um, and the ECB will have delivered uh, in terms of uh, at least the language. So um, you know, they're, they're ahead of the impact that Comey has. Europe will have, uh, will have potentially you know, be, be, be yeah. closed by the time we get those headlines. Let's uh, throw
0: all the currencies into the mix. We'll play a little game in the 90 seconds we have left. I throw the euro in there, throw the pound, and your base currency is the dollar for both of those pairs. Ken Vexler, do you want to be long the euro through to Thursday into uh, into Friday, or long the pound? I'd
3: like to be long euro sterling.
0: Okay, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Rich.
4: Ken Vexler, you just, choked, you just took my answer. <laughs> Is that your answer too? Yeah, I think. You've I Euro think, I think, Yeah, yeah I, I think it's come up against some resistance this week, but it's probably something that that will do well over the coming. That's few just
0: weeks. how you s- both sidestepping the Comey issue. Simon Bell, what have you got?
1: Do you know what I've got? You, I've got Sterling high yield. I'll go long sterling, high yield, going into the uh, going into the election, (laughs) because if we if we get the result that the uh, the Conservatives have maintained power and extended their majority, then that's going to snap tighter again and having widened this week.
0: There's a couple of trades for you. And a sidestep from Richard Jones to Ken Vexler, who should know better to sit on fences. Ken Vexler, Richard Jones, Simon Ballard, gents, what a privilege, a pleasure for me to be in the City of London with you. As we count you down to the election on Thursday, you have been listening to The Cable from London for the beautiful city that we're all proud to be a part of. You've been listening to The Cable. You've been listening to Bloomberg Radio.